come in. Good evening. Aaron. <laughs> it's me, your favorite human podcaster. Yeah, I know that. It's good to see you. You're looking as um, fresh as ever. It's good to be here. Have you been sleeping well recently? I've been sleeping amazingly. I just came back from my holiday in Transylvania. Wow, I've always wanted to go to Transylvania. The mountains are beautiful. You know, I've heard the wine there is really good. Well, I happened to bring a lovely bottle back for you, my good friend. Wow. It has a very metallic taste. It's so thick and viscous. <laughs> Say, Aaron. Yes. Normal human Aaron. That's me, regular Aaron. You know, Same as before. Normally I know that you come over to my house and we record the podcast, but... Yes. Take a look, it's such a beautiful day out. The sun is shining, the birds are singing. What do you say we go on a little stroll? You know, I'm actually in kind of a rush. I'd like to wrap this up now. One more thing, before we do, I just want to make one thing very clear. Uh-huh. I am not a vampire. <laughs> Definitely not vampire. What's a vampire? <laughs> you know, a vampire. Uh, I don't know. I think something's getting lost in translation. You know, your voice sounds a bit weird, like... No, it doesn't. This is... I've always talked like this. Or is that like a British accent? Close enough. Australian? Oh, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been watching a lot of Peppa Pig? <laughs> I was watching Bluey. <laughs> but bef before we get started, do you know where I could find any... Virgins? <laughs> Good east is all. Now brimming wine in lordly cupboards to shine before each eager guest. And silence fills the crowded hall, as deep as when the heron's call thrills in the loyal breast. Welcome back to the Weird Medieval Guys podcast. I'm Olivia, and this is Aaron, a normal human being who walks around outside in the daytime, eats food, and drinks water, just like the rest of us. Hang on. <clears throat> hey, everybody, it's me. I'm back. <laughs> you might have thought for a moment during that spectacularly crafted Coles Open that Aaron had somehow been changed, transformed even, into some sort of undead creature. What, you were recording that conversation? <laughs> However, that was merely a conceit in order to introduce the topic of today's episode. Would you like to introduce it, Aaron? Vampires. We're going to talk about medieval vampires. We're going to talk about fake medieval vampires, other fake medieval vampires... A uh, real medieval vampire at the end. It's gonna be great. That's right. This is our Halloween episode, so Ooh. buckle up. Get your mulled wine and your other cozy autumnal accoutrements, and let's go on a journey through medieval vampirism. Let's get spooky. Now, look, I'm gonna take uh, both Olivia and the and the listeners back behind the the creative curtain for a second and explain why I wanted to do this episode. The reason why I, I, I pitched this idea as our first ever Halloween episode was because Olivia has a long-standing love of vampires. That's right, and one vampire in particular who I think many people might say is their favorite vampire. The you one fucking and only Count I know, <laughs> mainstream, the one and only Count Dracula. So there's millions, no, there's not millions, there's hundreds of different iterations and depictions of Dracula 
the star of Bram Stoker's late 19th century novel, Dracula. And he's definitely a character who intrigues and entices, as I would say, is the vampire as a concept. So there's lots of different versions of vampires out there. Just oh, like yeah. there's lots of different versions of Dracula. Some of them are rabbits. Some of them sell chocolate. That's Some right. of them teach you how to count. There's Banicula, there's the cat. I am so glad you know what Banicula is. <laughs> Everyone knows what Banicula is. Nobody knows is. about Banicula. You're not special. You fucking, <laughs> you fucking hipster nerd. This is like the standing in the corner meme. No one here knows Banicula. <laughs> yeah, we fucking do. Shut up, bitch. Um, there's, of course, many adaptations of varying faithfulness of the original novel. So Nosferatu, the German expressionist silent film, is a favorite. You might have seen Francis Ford Coppola's version, in which Keanu Reeves does a less than convincing British accent. Oi, mister, is we gonna ride on horses? <laughs> that was about the level of Keanu that Reeves' was, English that accent. That was better. That was, <laughs> you were less sort of, um, less limp than he was. Um, and of course, there's the iconic 1931 adaption starring Bela Lugosi, the film that more or less started and ruined Bela Lugosi's acting career because he could never get cast as anything else again. Really? Yes. That's terrible. Yes. Actually, if you read about Bela Lugosi, he's a really cool guy who had a really tragic life because he was born in Hungary in, you know, the late 19th century and basically was like a social a socialist activist and like union leader throughout all of these different sort of periods of social unrest. Bad time to be a Hungarian union leader in yep. the 20th century. Yep. And um and then he moved to the US to start his filmmaking career and he got cast as Dracula, you know, blew up. It was incredibly iconic. And then he could just never get like cast as anything except ambiguously Eastern European monster villain. His career really foundered, and like I don't think he did anything that he took a lot of enjoyment in, like film roles wise, after that, you know, and he got That sucks. Why why are we starting a lot a of bummer? A lot of low billing and then this is like the worst part of the story is oh God. when he died, his I think wife and son had him buried in his Dracula cape, which like he had never requested. I hope that we're going to talk a lot about uh, reanimation and undead people uh, in this episode. I hope he fucking haunted them for that. That's I know. terrible. I know. Awful. A final insult. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yes. In lighter news, you mentioned that there was uh, there was the 1931 film of Dracula, but as you recently informed me, there are actually two 1931 films of Dracula. Well, there's Dracula and then there's Dracula. <laughs> Latino Dracula. There is Latino Dracula. <laughs> That's right. So if you're not aware of this, in 1931, a Spanish language version of the... In 1931, a Spanish language version of the original Dracula film was made because overdubbing technology wasn't quite what it is now. And so they thought, well, you know what? We've got the whole set up. We've got the studio time booked. Let's bring in a cast of Latina actors and just film an entirely separate Spanish-language version of Dracula. Of course, the English-language cast was using the set during the day, so this version was filmed at night. Wait, what? So they didn't, like... I always assumed they did it, like, sequentially. No. It was filmed at night. Oh, 
that's so good. So every day after English language Dracula had finished filming, the Spanish language <laughs> cast would come in. The Spanish. I'm imagining this like you know the scene in Shaun of the Dead where they just the two like teams just file past each other yeah. and they're identical. Yeah, and. The director, who did not speak a word of Spanish, <laughs> by the way. Vamos! Vamos! Um, would He was basically filming a shot-for-shot shot remake with the same script, but translated, and the same camera angles, except that he would actually review the film from that day's shooting on the English version and make adjustments and updates and places where he thought that the film could be improved. He'd oh make a little God. improvement. So the Spanish-language version actually has extra scenes added in. and Who bit, wrote the scenes? I think the director did, or maybe he just, you know, had people come up with stuff where he felt like it was needed. You there, boy, you speak, you speak Spanish. <laughs> How do you say, I'm not so sure about this dark cave? <laughs> exactly. Harker. <laughs> yes. I'd love to see a movie about the making of that movie. Absolutely. You know, that, that, those are in now. You have, like, the disaster artist and Mank and stuff. I've told you about one of my other favorite Dracula movies, which is a movie about the making of the movie Nosferatu, in which the central conceit is that the actor who's been hired to play the vampire is actually a vampire, and he's played by Willem Dafoe, and he's just like a little rat. (laughs) And it's great. There's a great scene where he's sitting around a campfire with these two other guys who are humans, and they're talking to him, and he's giving all of these, like, really insane vampire answers to their questions, and then he just grabs a bat as it flies past and starts, yes! like, munching on it, and the guys are like, whoa, this actor they got is pretty weird. This actor, thespians are very strange. <laughs> Yeah, basically. Um, oh, and the the director of the movie is played by. You can do what's it. What's his name? The guy who they go inside in the movie. What? John Honey, Malkovich. I the kid. Oh. <laughs> Being John Malkovich. Yeah. The guy they go inside in the other movie. Well, you know. Let's get terminological, all right? What makes a Dracula... Fuck, no, I'm gonna... It's so tempting. I know. What makes a vampire a vampire? How does it... How do you distinguish a vampire from a ghost or a ghoul or a zombie? So there's a few different issues at play here, I would say. First of all, vampire gotta be undead. Yeah. So that means a vampire is necessarily corporeal. So Mm -hmm. it's the body of someone who has died and come back to life. The vampire also is usually characterized by a tendency to drink human blood. Mm. So that's an important one as well. And most depictions of vampires also include superhuman abilities. So there's shape-shifting and there is sometimes mind control and most often there is a sort of, you know, physical durability. They're very difficult to kill, usually, vampires. Mm. We have different interpretations of how you should kill a vampire. Maybe you need to stake through the heart or, like, some silver. Um, Or in Twilight, you have to cut them up and set them on fire. But usually there's there's a knack to it. You can't just go in guns blazing. Yeah. I'd add another sort of... It's not necessarily a, a sort of necessary criteria, but I think another thing that comes out quite a lot in a lot of depictions of vampires is they're almost always foreign, which you can trace all the way back to, of course, um, the Transylvanian Count himself, 
the original Bram Stoker's Dracula, but like even then, like things that are much less directly derivative of Dracula in terms of a story. There's there's still the, there's still this expectation that he's a sort of shadowy foreign nobleman who's sort of preying on the the weak willed modern effete elite. Absolutely. Although interestingly, it wasn't until the Bela Lugosi adaptation that Dracula actually was portrayed with a foreign accent. Well, yes, because in the original story, he's like he has perfect English, doesn't he? Which is part of the what part of why he's so sort of unnerving. Yes. You're like, there's something up with this guy. <laughs> I don't know if he is from here. <laughs> Where were your parents born again? <laughs> So Lotharingia? <laughs> Is that in France? <laughs> Callback joke. Uh, there's gonna be a lot of those this time. Yes. Um, but I think in order to sort of dig into the multiplicity of vampire depictions we have in the present day, we should maybe go back to the Middle Ages and yes. have a lo- a little bit of a look at how some of these legends took root in the first place. So yeah. have vampires in sort of the modern sense, the Dracula sense always existed. Eh, I mean, kind of. It's 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 a bit amorphous. There are definitely legends. There, there's a lot of stuff that looks and sounds a lot like Dracula in um, in uh, medieval folklore and medieval writing, but either aren't called a vampire or are missing one of those sort of key essential parts of what makes a vampire a vampire. I mean, to take a random example, I was reading a story from a book called uh, Courtier's Follies um, by a man called Walter Mapp, a Welsh scholar um, in the sort of late Middle Ages. And he, t- he, tells, he tells a couple of sort of spooky stories in this, in this book, uh, and I'm sure we'll come back to him. But one of the stories he tells is of this, this noble family, and they, they keep trying to have, have a child, but every time they have a child, the child dies. And on the third sort of the third attempt, <laughs> when they've read a third one, they uh, they sort of uh, they, they they're like, okay, we're gonna watch it constantly and see what happens. And uh, they, in doing that, they 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 sort of stumble across the matron of the house who's supposed to be like character baby, up slitting its throat. And they're like, what the fuck is going on? Now a couple things to note here: she's not drinking the blood. And that's a key. That's a key difference that makes this not a vampire. But they sort of they drag her out. They brand her with a cross. She's like, okay, we we know who you are. <laughs> We've got you. And then they're like, wait a minute. This isn't the matron because they bring they bring the actual matron, and she's got no idea what's going on. But they sort of they bring this woman face to face with this whatever it is that is like. Ex- looks exactly like her, right down to the branding, but he's actually an evil demon, and that's the end of it. So, the, so the story ends. Spooky, Very yeah. yeah, absolutely. And um, I don't know if you read about one of Walter Mapp's contemporaries, William of Nubra. I did, yes. He also recorded quite a few different stories about things that could be considered somewhat akin to vampires, although I think in his version they were referred to as revenants, Mm -hmm. so remnants in a sense, um, of people who used to be alive, and these are people who died under some circumstances that were unusual in some sense. So in some cases these were 
Christians or people who held positions in the church but abused the power that that gave them, or people who um, died without proper burial rights, or even people who died with some sort of unfinished business. So for instance, there was one story he told of a man who walked in on his wife cheating on him <laughs> with another guy <laughs> and was so distraught that he like fell into fits and died. And what happens with all these different people in the stories is that they come back. Often they come back only at night, but they mm. rise out of their graves and they visit people from their communities, often people who wronged them or people who um, they have some sort of leftover business with yeah. to horrify them, perhaps even kill them or wound them. Um, and then at the end of the night, they go back into their graves. Yeah. And what William of Newborough says usually um, happens with these revenants is that some sort of additional measures need to be applied, where the mm. corpses are dug up out of the ground, and in some cases he says that they were dismembered, or they were beheaded, or they were burnt, or some sort of religious iconography was placed upon them, and then they'd be reburied, and then the visitations would stop. Yes, and it's very important to note, interestingly, that... Uh, we talk a lot about different sort of medieval sources and different pieces of writing on this show. And quite often we talk about like how uh, you're not always supposed to take it literally. The interesting thing about William of Newburgh is that he's 100% being serious as far as we can tell. Because he says stuff like... Can I actually, I have a quote. Oh, I think we have the same quote, yeah. <laughs> can you do a William of Newburgh voice? Oh god, what does he sound like? He's, I think he'd be very professorial. Yeah, he would. Yeah, he's, I mean, he says in, in this text, he says, Certainly, the fact that cadavers of the dead, having got out of their graves, should be borne about by I know not what spirit to terrorize or injure the living, would not easily be accepted as true if there were not so many examples at hand from our own time, and if the testimony were not so abundant. If I wanted to write about every incident of this sort, it'd be too complicated and onerous. So he's basically saying, like, yeah, I don't know what to tell you, man. It just happens. You might not believe it, but everyone says it happens, so it must happen. Yeah, this is very much like the this is very much the equivalent of like the the sort of a journalist in like a major broadsheet paper being like, "Vampires is real." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sort of outside the Anglosphere mm -hmm. as well. There are lots of different creatures that resemble the modern vampire in some sense or another. Yeah. I mean, the sort of the ground zero for vampires, um, as far as we can tell, is probably Slavic Eastern Europe. So, and we're about to do something that I think is historiographically not great, which is we're going to talk about uh, folklore in the pre-modern era. So basically, you know, we're going to try and talk about an oral tradition that ex existed before sort of standardized uh, anthropologies or ethnographies were even a thing, which is bad, don't do this, but <laughs> there's enough, there's, I think there's just enough sources on this, in this specific case and enough evidence to, um, to, to make it worthwhile. Anyway, um, that health morning out of the way, uh, it seems like, if you, if you sort of trace the etymology, it seems like vampire comes from a sort of from a from a Slavic root word and from the sort of the Slavic mythologies about these undead creatures that sort of 
rise from the grave to terrorize the living, as you've said. Some of them drink blood, but some of them interestingly don't. So, for example, in the sort of in the in the Rus culture, which is the sort of you know Slavic Viking hybrid society that uh, that sort of gives birth to Russia and Ukraine and Belarus, they don't they don't drink blood. But this is a common theme, and they are sometimes being sort of referred to in in language that will evolve into the word vampire to oversimplify things quite a bit and interestingly they are quite specific about how you how you how 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 do you make vampire what's the recipe so basically um according to old tradition uh there's a couple of ways it can happen so if you die an unclean death first of all so if you're a drunkard a thief a murderer if you're unbaptized people who died from suicide and if you die in connection if you have too much connection with the living or a connection to like evil spirits so if you're a witch or a like a sorcerer or something vampires all day mate um so that's the sort of origin myth in huge quotation marks and one of the things that i think is interesting is that there's there's a bit of debate about where this comes from originally um some people say that it's a sort of it's a pre-christian uh, pre-Christian tradition, but what's interesting is that even if it is, it doesn't fade away. Yeah. Post-conversion of these sort of of these communities to Christianity, it's a very powerful idea. Absolutely, and even Christianity was synthesized into the idea by introducing the notion of someone who's abused, you know, the power or faith of Christianity in their lives could make them more likely to come back as one of these things. And it's mm-hmm. a, it's a sort of ubiquitous concept as well, isn't it? The idea of coming something, some sort of creature coming back and coming death. back wrong. It's yes. all very pet cemetery. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. I mean, there's, um, uh, there's a Nordic version called the Draug or Dragur. Somebody hasn't played Skyrim. <laughs> I don't know who, but somebody out there. Um, and that's also a very similar reanimated corpse-like creature that comes back and has magical abilities like shape-shifting. And one thing that I think is really interesting and is kind of a key distinction f- between the medieval, quote, vampire and the modern vampire is a lot of the folklore is very explicit about these medieval vampires being absolutely disgusting to look at. I mean... <laughs> These are like, they're not sexy men. No. They're bloated corpses that have come back from the grave and are probably leaking fluids and like maybe bits of them are falling off and there's probably like a lot of, you know, decay going on. It's like a smart zombie, basically. What I think that uh, exemplifies is the fact that this this is a notion of vampirism that's very distinct from what we think of now. Like Bram Stoker kind of creates the modern vampire in in Dracula and he adds the the foreignness the horniness and and uh, the predilection for sa- the, the sanguine fluid as yeah, it were yeah absolutely and and the kind of ability to blend into human society more yeah, or less yeah yeah because the again these these vampires are coming back and like hitting you with a shovel but they're not like hanging out for yeah, the most part. exactly. They're not seducing your wife. <laughs> there are some, like, I mean, again, this that's an overstatement. There are some legends about, like, vampires that are able to come back and sort of blend in a bit. But it's the, pr- predominantly, it's like, fast, smart zombie that might be able to talk. 
Yeah, I mean, I think as you've said before, there are a lot of different traits that we're seeing in different creatures, such as associations with blood or the idea of something looking like a familiar person but is fundamentally somehow wrong mm. and something that's come back from the dead. And there's a lot of these traits that appear in folklore, although it is true that before Dracula, we don't necessarily see them all together. Yeah. No, it's it's a bit like a sort of, there's a sort of Venn diagram of of medieval vampirism. The vampire spectrum. The vamp- it's, it's the vampire spectrum. And you have like, one box is like um, <laughs> undead, one box is drinks blood, one box is sexy sex appeal yeah sex appeal and they don't all like they're very they're they're they all sort of exist in these different in these different quadrants but they aren't necessarily all combined into one so all these traits that we now think of as definitive wouldn't necessarily have been another piece of evidence and it's a bit of a problematic one but another piece of evidence that we have for vampiric folk belief is this very strange and very eerie uh, tradition of what are called uh, vampire burials. Now, this category is a bit controversial because it's, you know, I mean, the name is problematic because it's assuming that this is a vamp- the body of a vampire. It's probably more productive to call them, like, deviant burial, basically. So these deviant burials are places where, uh, you know, the, the body has been buried, but it's been fucked with in some specific ways. And these show up everywhere. So what I mean is like maybe there's metal bars on the uh on the on the coffin. Maybe the the corpse has been chained to the bottom of the coffin. Maybe somebody's driven a wooden stake through the heart of the of the corpse. Yeah. Uh maybe somebody there's cases of people having a rock thrust into their mouth hard enough to break their teeth. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of this stuff is quite violent and slightly terrifying and we know pretty Confidently, this is stuff that's happening to a corpse after burial. Yeah, there's people with sickle blades around their necks. Oh, that was a show. Cool. Holding them to the ground. Yeah, it's pretty insane, and it is seen um, all over Europe throughout the Middle Ages. Although I would say from that Bulgaria is, to Ireland, yeah, it is. It's found somewhat more commonly in Eastern Europe, where it seems to have been the norm for quite some time to bury yeah. all people in this way. And I think. It's it's definitely, as Aaron has said, there are some issues with reading in, oh, this is definitely, in every case, a vampire burial. But it is absolutely plausible to imagine that um, in places where this perhaps wasn't the norm, it was a type of burial that was more commonly given to people who were assumed to carry some, some risk or some sort of negative... Juju. Yeah. Well, I know. <laughs> Bad vibes. Well, this is, well, this is, this is, so this is so interesting. Um, the idea of deviant burials, so not just like quote unquote vampire burials, but any kind of burial that's like outside of the norm, that kind of practice being applied to somebody who is like socially undesirable is a consistent thread uh, that you, that you see um, all across, across the Middle Ages. I was reading this super interesting paper. Uh, in preparation for this episode about sort of different burial practices for European monarchs. And this is this is a great data set because they are able to, like, access pretty much everybody who's ever died in this social class because, you know... People they... tended to remember when monarchs died. <clears throat> exactly, yeah, and where. Um, although not always, of course. But, like, 
one, what the, one of the things they found through sort of analyzing these, these cases statistically is that you had a very high chance of having your, um, having a burial that's in some way deviant, some way like different from, uh, from, uh, from, from Catholic doctrine. If you were, if you, di if you died in an unusual way, so like not sort of in your bed or on the battlefield. And if you were sort of in some way controversial or uh, problematic, or like, for example, an excommunicate. So a, a king who had been excommunicated would not receive proper sort of Christian burial. So yeah, it was a way for the living to enforce social norms even after death. Yeah, sorry I've been making a slightly pained expression. I was kind of anxiously waiting for you to bring up the nipple thing. Oh God! Do you know about the nipple? No, thing? I don't know about the nipple thing. Okay, I need to. Um... I'm confused and frightened now. <laughs> it's a form of deviant burial. Oh um... dear. <laughs> I, I, yeah, deviant's the word for it. I'm sure. Well, yeah. So, so I think one other type of burial that falls into this category is um, the bog body. Often, what we find with um, people who have been given a deviant burial in some way or another is also that they may have died a violent death somehow, either by mm -hmm. execution or in battle, which I think yes. for a lot of scholars lends a further degree of credibility that these might be people who were being dishonored deliberately by their burial. So this is a bog body of a man who was found in Iron... This is an Iron Age bog body, so it's not a medieval bog body, but it's an Iron Age man who is estimated to have stood between six feet tall and six foot six, which is quite tall. A chad. For, um, yeah, for I mean, the it's Iron incredibly Ages. tall for, for a modern man, but like... Well, not incredibly tall. That's, that's revealing a bit too much about me. But it's unbelievably tall for, a, like, a pre-modern person, because they weren't getting proper nutrition. Um, so this bog body, as well as a couple other bog bodies, have been found with their nipples either mutilated or cut off entirely. <sighs> and so there's a theory that this was a specific type of mutilation that was meant to dishonor um, kings, or meant to mark a rejected or a dishonored king. I think because of some cultural practice that involved like kissing someone's nipples to indicate your deference to them, or something like that. But yeah, just a We've fun... We've come a long way as a species. Just a fun example of a way in which um, mutilation of a body has been tied, although not, of course, conclusively, to a dishonor. Yeah. I think what we can learn from the quote-unquote vampire burials in general is that this was, even if not all of them were sort of explicitly tied to vampirism, people are clearly so concerned about what the proper sort of rights to give a body after somebody's died, that it's expressive of some kind of anxiety. And I think we should talk about what kinds of... Yeah. Sorry, I just saw there's recipe, you have recipes from the world of Tolkien, and I... Oh, like, yeah, that's cool, Daniels. but now I... But you know now what I want. To make some. That, but also recipes from the world of Redwall. Aww. That would be good, wouldn't it? Recipes from the world of Dracula. It's very short. Just like it's grandma's a... blood. <laughs> it's a very short book. It's got three pages. And one of them's the foreword. <laughs> yeah, so I think we should talk.
talk a little bit about the sort of the 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 anxieties and neuroses of uh, of medieval people towards these kind of ideas that vampires express so things like blood and death and happy stuff like that oh all the best stuff absolutely because yeah i think what we see in all of these different vampire archetypes is uh a fear or an anxiety around people returning from the dead yeah and also a fear of the living being drained of their life um by some sort of unknown monstrous creature. Yeah. So so yeah, I read a really interesting paper on medieval blood as a symbol and a, a sort of social device, which I found really, really interesting. Um, so of course, blood is, I think, universally quite symbolic um, to most cultures. And the Middle Ages is, of course, no exception. They were the first culture to associate blood with a lot of heavy symbolism. Um, but of course, blood in Christianity, in particular, has a very specific role. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> exactly. So, blood was, in some ways, seen. This is what this paper sort of theorizes, at least, is that blood was seen as the medium that bound together the soul and the body. Yes. And that blood is not quite flesh, but also not quite spirit, and that it contains some essence of life or of being or who a person is. It contains the spiritus, the membrane, which is apparently produced by, you know, they, they had very particular ideas about where that was produced in the body. They're like, oh no, it's in the left ventricle. <laughs> That's where bada the soul bing, goes. Bada bing, bada boom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so bloodshed was, of course very symbolic. So, for instance, in the case of a religious figure or a saint, or especially the man himself, Jesus Christ. Big J. Big Jimmy, Greasy Jim. <laughs> Slipping Jimmy. <laughs> oh my god. Because you know, Christ means anointed with oil. <gasps> so, gee, wow. Sorry. I gotta stop watching that show. It's <laughs> infecting my brain. Um, and so, in this sense, to shed blood um, for these figures was seen as a symbol of kind of the most, the utmost sacrifice and the utmost suffering. Um, and it was believed that these people's blood, in the form of a relic, then could possibly impart some sort of magical or divine powers or effects upon someone who carried it around or was in its proximity. So... Yeah, it's quite interesting, but then, of course, there's sort of the the negative side as well of blood being unwillingly shed, and if something Mm. draining you of your blood is then, because blood is such a, seen as such a sort of distillation of the self, then to be drained of one's blood was to be drained not just of one's physical life force, but also of one's spirit. Yeah, and this, I think, actually brings us to... Um, one of the, an, 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 an interesting and slightly macabre for different reasons, uh, theme of vampirism, which is a lot of people have associated it, uh, in the past with, with anti-Semitism. And that's definitely like the, the theme of the Jew as, as, as a vampire sort of, you know, sucking, sucking the lifeblood of somebody through, um, through finance, <laughs> through usury, <laughs> 
Uh, is that's a thing that comes out constantly in like the nineteenth and and twentieth century. Well, even in in you know Shakespeare, you have Shylock who yeah. wants his pound of flesh. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, Karl Marx made the comparison. The man himself being <laughs> Jewish, not helpful. Um, but anyway, what I think is, and and of course there was there was a a huge a huge um, amount of anti-Semitism in the Middle Ages was inflected with this sort of theme of blood and the consumption of Christian blood being, you know, an important part of Jewish people's satanic rituals. Because again, the, the premise of medieval anti-Semitism was these are the people who explicitly reject Jesus. Just like demons. They had an opportunity and they rejected it, which means they're irredeemably awful. Yeah, and then we killed him. You did. I, I'm still not over it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so, so there, there, there were these, especially in the late Middle Ages, these vicious, horrific rumors are sort of end up being spread about like Jewish people like butchering uh, Christian children and use, baking their blood into matzah for Passover, Sheesh. <laughs> which is pretty intense, and it leads to a lot of Jewish people getting burned alive. There are entire German villages who kill their entire Jewish population over this. I'm bringing this up because it's an it's evidence of how important sort of blood was in Christian theology, but it's important to sort of note that the connection to between anti-Semitism and the vampire myth comes a lot later than I think a lot of people expect. If you want to learn more about that, there's a very good article called Circumcising Dracula. Yes. Which is worth it for the, which is worth it, A, is worth it for the, uh, for the title alone, but B, contains a really good joke about a Jewish vampire on the first page. Oh, excellent. So go check that one out. Yeah, it's interesting. As a little aside, as a Jewish person myself, who I think is not perceived as Jewish on Twitter on Weird Medieval Guys, I'm mostly <laughs> sharing Catholic art, which the tradcasts kind of flock to. But actually, I had someone recently send me a message, I posted a picture of a demon that had like green skin and a, a hooked nose and whatnot. And someone messaged me actually and said, oh, you shouldn't post this type of thing because like it's anti-Semitic imagery and, you know, green skin and like a hooked nose, that's anti-Semitic symbols. Mm. And, um... I found it really interesting because this person wasn't Jewish and I of course, definitely yeah. respected sort of their, you know, not knowing that I'm Jewish, I respected that they were willing to reach out and sort of engage with that. But actually, green skin was not in the Middle Ages and I don't think ever really properly has been an anti-Semitic trope. And I think that there are a lot of different, not just anti-Semitic, but racist and otherwise discriminatory t tropes that we have nowadays and there's a tendency in history for people to look into history and see things that resemble these tropes and think, oh, this must have been deliberate anti-Semitism. Yeah. This must have been deliberate racism. And although people's fears or negative associations with these things can be influenced by their sort of discriminatory mindsets, that doesn't necessarily mean that, like, oh, if you see someone with a hooked nose, that's definitely a, a Jewish caricature. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I think that the, the it's certainly in the case of, like, vampirism, I think that you can say, I, I don't think you can say that, like, oh, vamp, like, the fear of vampires is about the fear of Jews, because as we've sort of kind of been implying up to this point, a lot, the, 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 the fear that vampires sort of and the sort of revenants and whatever else you want to call them represent is a fear of something emerging from within the community 
whereas within the Christian community, I should say, whereas uh, the the um, a lot of the anti-Semitic uh, sort of tropes in the Middle Ages are about fear of the outsider, the foreigner, the um, you know the 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 alien, which is you know it's it's they can be related, but it's a very different kind of it's a very different kind of fear. I think that you know. Dracula being Dracula, the choice to make Dracula a foreigner in the original novel, even if he doesn't have an accent <laughs> in the original, is is sort of is where we get that kind of fusion point. But up until of of those kinds of fears of the undead and of of the sort of outsider, but up until that point, I think it's probably better to say that like anti-Semitism and um, vampirism they sort of emerge in the same world and they are influenced by the same ideas. But they aren't necessarily influencing each other directly. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And I think that the fear of something malignant emerging from within one's own community mm. is a, still a, an equally potent and equally damaging fear. Another sort of anxiety uh, that I think pretty clearly the the vampire myth is helping people to process is the kind of complicated relationship with death. Because I think, I think we have this stereotype in, uh, in, in the modern era that life in the Middle Ages was cheap and that death was not really a big deal. Uh, but if you actually check like any primary sources, there's really quite moving sort of accounts of, sort of, 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 of grief, you know? And, and I mean, there's a great line that I found from the, a preacher's handbook, which is brilliant, called... Uh, Facilius Morum uh, from the 14th century. This is the quote. When a human being dies, the body that gave comfort to many people while it was alive provokes horror in the same people after death. Hence the saying, human flesh is viler than a sheep's skin. When a sheep dies, its remains are still worth something. The skin is stretched and written on, on both sides. When a human being dies, both flesh and bones die. And I th yeah, I think that that sort of speaks to that's that's expressive of a kind of, you know, this person's not saying that oh, I wish I, I could make bongos out of my gran, but like. But what if they were? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, genuine question. Okay. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, no. Go ahead. What kind of book would you want your skin to be turned into? Ooh, that's good. You go first. A Warhammer forty k rulebook. Fuck, that's what. That's. Well, if anybody, if, if either of us is going to get turned into a, a Warhammer Codex, it's going to be me. Oh, all right. Oh yeah. I have the I have the background to back this up. Well, I just called dibs, so. Well, I guess it's a race to see who gets there first, huh? <laughs> race to the bottom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what I'm getting at here is that people were living with death as a yes, as a you know as a fact of life, but not being like glib about it which I think we can be when we think about the Middle Ages, like, you know, projecting back. We're just like, oh, everybody just lived and died in shit at the age of 15, and so nothing mattered. And I think one of the things that is really interesting is that medieval culture was quite different, I think, in its relationship with death than, 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 than a lot of modern cultures are. Like, there's a great quote uh, from Patrick Geary, from his book, Living with the Dead in the Middle Ages, because he, he calls uh, death, he says it's not the opposite of life, but it's an age class. So 
you're an infant, you're a child, you're an adult, you're elderly, you're dead, rather than you're alive or you're dead. It kind of reminds me of, you know, the Bob Dylan song. I'm on the dark side of the room. <laughs> like, it's... it's <laughs> Yeah. What he's saying there is that the living and the dead just kind of coexisted. Like, you, you... Just because you were dead, it didn't mean that you lost your sort of... You didn't necessarily have a relationship with, with other people, and you didn't necessarily... And that and the living didn't necessarily have obligations to you after death. It's difficult to you to prove people's attitudes towards specific things when mm. they're not written down. But some of the first signs of what we consider to be human culture and religious or spiritual belief in the historical record are signs of burials and signs of funerals yeah and people taking care of their dead so i think that you can sort of examine the aspect or the notion of caring about your dead and treating dead people in a certain way until the cows come home more or less but i think there will always just be perhaps a sort of immutable core to it which is that this is just something that people do yeah it's yeah. important to people. Yeah. And I think it, it, it in, in medieval culture, it sort of expressed, it was expressed as this sort of, there's this kind of permeability between the world of the living and the world of, of the dead. You know, there, there was, there were these, there was this idea that like, you know, you could die a good death or a bad death and whether or not you did would, in, would sort of determine what happened to you afterwards. You could die, you know. You could undergo a, a temporary death or a more permanent death, and you could die, you know, a partial death. Yeah. So a death of the personality without death of the body, and vice versa. Yes, and of course there's the idea that the soul lives on after death. The idea that, of course, what we experience on Earth isn't final, and perhaps even that what we experience on Earth is just an extended interview for heaven. Yeah. But despite that, that doesn't seem to have kept people from being concerned about death and concerned about the body after yeah. death. Um, perhaps this suggests that people weren't always behaving in a you know way that they thought guaranteed them entry to heaven. It's a super complicated subject, and to be honest, this probably deserves its own podcast at the very least. But as it relates to vampirism, uh, the important point to note is that I think what it tells you is that the cultural context was such that people were primed to believe stories about vampires when they heard them. Because it'd be like, I mean, that sounds, that's pretty fucked up, but like, it's plausible. And interestingly, it was also medically plausible as well. This is, this, okay, this is fascinating. So we talked a little bit about blood and the, how blood is this sort of membrane that connects the spirit and the body. And the implications of that were explored by some medieval writers who explicitly said, oh yeah, no, like, you can then, that means that a body, a, a human body, because it has these physical qualities, therefore it makes it possible for the spirit to come in and puppeteer it. So, for example, in another uh, great manual for preachers by Thomas of Cantimpre, so because when you die, uh, your body sort of remains around and it still has these uh, 
physical attributes that sort of connect it to a soul means that you can a soul can return and puppeteer it. The body's a little bit like a puppet with like strings attached and you know when you die you just put down the apparatus and you can come back and pick that up again if you if you're so choose to and so can somebody else <laughs> so de there hence why you get stories of like demons puppeteering human corpses that we kind of talked about before or um or people coming back from the dead to bash their ex-wife in with <laughs> with a with, with a uh shovel um so yeah it's a the point that i'm trying to make here is that it's it's plausible vampirism would be like yeah that's I could, you, you could imagine that happening based on how learned medieval people thought about the world. Of course, yeah, because there's the whole idea that the, the spirit persists and that the body is more than just, you know, the flesh and blood. So yeah, and I think beyond just the immediate notion of giving a medical justification to something like reanimation or vampirism... I think there's also a very complex psychological issue at play or psychological mm. reasoning for this. Um, so this gets sort of even more theoretical than our initial vampire, medieval vampire discussions did, because although some medieval people were writing down their fears or anxieties or things that they had heard about specific legends and myths and creatures, most people weren't writing down why they thought people... Um, experienced these things. or People weren't studying sort of vampires from an anthropological no. point of view or a sociological point of view. Trying to analyze exactly why these creatures were so prevalent in mythology is always going to be very, very theoretical. Um, something that we can draw on to an extent perhaps a bit more is modern uh, folklore, mm. modern mythology, and the creation of modern legends. So, of course, you can't say that pe modern people think exactly in the same way that medieval people do. But I do think that unless you're willing to, to die on the hill, that the way people experience sort of fear and like social pressures and anxieties has fundamentally changed over the past 500 or so years, I do think you can draw a bit on like modern sociological yeah. studies of how myths and legends about threats have been created and disseminated. Well, look, I mean, they were, they, yeah, I mean, they were, medieval people were different to us, obviously, but, you know, they may have had different inputs, but they're still working with the same hardware. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's interesting because I read a paper that differentiated traditional, so to speak, folklore from what we might call an urban legend today mm. by saying that folklore draws on supernatural themes, whereas urban legends draw on just sort of plausible human baseness. Um, so one really good example, I think, of an urban legend is, and this is very topical, Halloween. More specifically, in America, Halloween candy. Strangers are putting rat poison and razor blades in. They're your putting. Halloween they're candy. giving them fentanyl candy. Exact to specifically to kill them. Yes. So this is something that comes up every year. It has never happened. Never been ever. substantiated. So the closest instances I could find to this happening, apart from like people who were using it as a cover to target specific children who they knew. Yeah. Was one of the earliest reports of 
adulterated candy being passed out at Halloween. There was a woman on Long Island who gave, um, I think, ant poison and steel wool out on Halloween. So the ant poison that she gave out was still in the original wrapper. It had a giant skull and crossbones on it. It said poison. <laughs> Ants, avoid. And she gave it out to teenagers who she thought were too old to be trick-or-treating, not in a deliberate attempt to harm them because they're not going to act. They're teenagers, right? They're not going to open the rat poison and eat it. She's just like, gonna, fuck you. They're not going to eat the steel wool. She just yeah. wanted them to get home and look in their Halloween candy <laughs> baskets and be like... <laughs> Wow. <laughs> She's just a bitch. Yeah, um, and she was arrested for this, and um, I don't think there's any reason to believe she meant to kill anyone. But um, non sequitur aside, this no one. there's never been an instance of someone genuinely trying to kill um, random children who they don't know by passing out Halloween candy. So if that doesn't, if that's never been substantiated and it doesn't happen, why is this such a prevalent myth? So this is a myth that you see come up especially beginning in the 70s and the 80s. And as sort of the second half of the 20th century wore on, concerns about things like stranger danger began to become more prevalent, concerns about random crimes and people targeting children, concerns about Satanism, um, interestingly, and concerns about things like rises in crime that often came from a sort of suburban white fear about racial integration. I was about to say the timeline on that is suspicious, isn't it? Yes. So this is really interesting because I think you can link it to the same concept of a threat, an unknown threat arising from one's own community. Mm. And a lot of papers that I read on this and on similar myths have connected this myth to fears about things that people actually thought could happen. And more specifically, taking the idea of, you know, fears about crime and about stranger danger and racial integration that suburban parents might have had. So this is a myth that's often perpetrated by sort of middle-class suburban parents. And the idea is that they felt an acute sense of collective anxiety about certain issues, but they didn't have a direct sort of threat that they could identify and mm. therefore lacked a way of addressing and resolving their anxieties. Yeah. And so then what happens is a threat is invented, not necessarily deliberately and not maliciously, but people take stories that they've heard and they essentially take them and fit them into their pre-existing ideas of things that are dangerous or things that mm. are threatening. Um, and so they build sort of collectively as this myth is proliferated and as it develops, it's passed on and it becomes more widespread and thus more solidified such that any sort of stranger danger that one might hear about or any instance of, you know, a child feeling unsafe then becomes subsumed into this overarching greater myth of strangers are passing out poisoned Halloween candy to hurt your children. Yeah. So it's really interesting, and especially a second paper that I read tied this into a really interesting study that explored the fact that people who believe in supernatural phenomena will interpret their experiences in the context of that. Yeah. So, for instance, 
I forget exactly what they did in the study, but the idea is, for instance, if someone sees a flashing light in the sky outside while they're trying to go to sleep, someone who, even if there is a rational justification for it, someone who doesn't believe in supernatural phenomena will probably follow that justification and say, oh, it's a plane or it's a helicopter, whereas someone who believes in supernatural phenomena will say, well, it's obviously a UFO. Yeah. So it's interesting And medieval people definitely did believe in supernatural phenomena. Exactly. As we've talked about extensively. Exactly. And so it's, it's really interesting because I think there's a tendency to say, well, this myth arose to explain this phenomenon. And I think it's, it's almost the opposite. Oftentimes in rigorous sociological studies that I've read, that myths aren't created to explain physical phenomena, they're made to justify sort of anxieties and fears. Mm. So, so put yourself in the mindset of a, I don't know, let's say 12th century Eastern European uh, villager. You know, you, you live with, you're trying, you're, you're trying to process the sort of, the, the enormity of death and what it represents. And at the same time, you're getting all these inputs from your local sort of church officials saying it's really bad <laughs> to, you know, steal and murder and adulter and drink too much and all this stuff. But you have to you have to be a good person. Otherwise, you're fucked forever. So. Would it be too would it be too crazy under those circumstances to imagine people corpses rising from the dead and you know butchering your neighbors i don't think so i think that's if anything a kind of rational response absolutely and i think there have been although i i, I again would caution against saying that myths are created directly to explain physical phenomena there have been discussions of links between vampire or undead mythology and actually what happens to people yes. After they die. Yeah. Which, um... Well, there's a great... Sorry, do you have a specific... No, example? no, no, go ahead. Well, there's a great example um, of sort of vampire vampire myths from, um, from, I think, gosh, I think Bohemia, where there's this specific myth about a vampire that sort of rises from the dead by eating its veil. So the, the, the wrappings that you, uh, that you wrap a body in when you bury it. So basically, um, a lot of the time when, when, a, when a body decays... There's this process where the epidermis, it sort of, it loosens from the dermis, so the skin is like sloughing off of the body. This is, if you have any kids in the room, my God, if you have any kids, I feel like we should edit this back in and and, uh, and and say this at the start. Uh, this is going to get grisly. There's some dark shit in this episode, and this is just Definitely. the start of that. Yeah, so what happens is that, you know, the epidermis loosens from the dermis, and the, the fingernails fall off, which exposes nail beds which makes it look like the fingernails are growing. Um, the hair as well. And the hair is growing at the same time. You know, the corpse is putrefying, so the abdomen is sort of bloating and, and, and growing and expanding. And uh, the decay of the gastrointestinal tract contents and lining, what it does, it creates this dark fluid called purge fluid that could actually run out of your nose and mouth. It's grim. Ugh. Um, that you that might look a bit like dried blood, for example. Zoinks. Zoinks. And if a corpse is wrapped in a shroud, putrid gases and purge fluid, which flows out of the mouth, would moisten the cloth enough that it sort of 
falls onto the teeth and it looks like it's being chewed. Yeah, especially because, you know, you have rigor mortis, which is like yeah. the tensing of the body after death. Um, so, yeah. It's, and the mouth uh, would, but after rigor mortis, the mouth opens, which means that the shroud literally falls into the yikes. mouth. Yeah, it's grim. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty messed up, I won't lie. And I think it's also important to note that in the Middle Ages, where often there were things like mass burials for plagues, and oftentimes mass graves then had to be reopened after a certain amount of time, and the bones then had to be taken out and put somewhere so you could pile more corpses in, it wouldn't have been uncommon to be reopening old graves. Yeah, you have to hang out with corpses a lot, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how do you think all those skeletons got into the Paris catacombs? They yeah. didn't they didn't, they didn't cut off all the there. heads and, you know, stack them <laughs> together while, you know, they 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 dug up the bones once people had been buried for a while and stacked them neatly. And I I think you're right though to say that this isn't necessarily um these natural phenomena didn't necessarily create the the core of the myth like you say it's the it's an anxiety that's it's an expression of a pre-existing social anxiety but it would probably sure as shit uh influence the details so the specific mythology about like well this is what the vampire does because all that stuff doesn't necessarily have to relate to it's not prescribed by the the, the social like fear that it's that this myth is expressing is by its definition amorphous and can't be named yes so how do you get the details probably by looking at a bunch of fucked up corpses yeah exactly it is i think greatly um greatly situational and that yeah it goes back a bit to what i was saying about this um phenomenon of modern legend creation so specifically this paper i was reading was by um someone named patrick b mullen who props to him for writing an absolute banger of a paper (laughs) but um he was explaining so he described legends as a form of collective problem solving which i thought was a great phrase because i think it does when you see like a veritable army of wine moms on Facebook (laughs) being like, how are we going to keep our children from the psychos who are putting fentanyl-laced HIV needles into their Halloween candy? And, you know, they start, like, organizing and, like, delegating. And it is a real community bonding exercise, identifying, like, an unknown non-existent threat and then mobilizing against it. So it's, it's... Salem witchcraft trial. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I think you can draw connections between these phenomena. But anyways, what he talked about as well was the ability for a myth to live on in the cultural memory, sort of spanning generations, which is to say that once a myth becomes crystallized as um, a specific set of attributes... It doesn't, um, it's still, it's still sort of a living thing in a sense, Mm. and it's embedded in people's minds in that then when they see things that they can link back to the myth, then that reawakens the myth of, for instance, the vampire in their minds. So say that because of natural human fears and anxieties and concerns about death and what happens to the soul after death, your culture has pre-existing fears of people, spirits, perhaps returning from the dead and then you have to see 
something like what we described when you open a grave, then even if something like, a, you know, a dead body trying to chew out of its burial shroud or exuding blood isn't necessarily something that's already part of the mythos, then you will see that and connect it in and it will reawaken and adapt and make you more likely to transmit the myth onwards. Yeah. And also I would say that uh, the myth can be sort of reshaped to represent new fears. For example, you know, let's say, you know, a couple hundred years down the line, uh, you're an you're an you're a, no you're an established imperial power um, that is sort of and, starting uh, to go on the down. You're start you've, you've come in con into contact with all of these uh, all of these new cultures and peoples and languages and, and you've you've dominated them, but they're starting to change you and they're they they are coming over literally perhaps. people perhaps perhaps you know. Perhaps that's a real country. Perhaps. Uh, well, yeah, perhaps you're starting to realize that you can't take infinitely without beginning to give. Yes. So perhaps in that circumstances, an old figure might be able to give voice to a new fear. But to do that, you need a guy. You need a figure. A face. Oh my god, it's literally make up a guy and then get mad at him. That's right. Well, not make up a guy. Find an old guy yeah. and then get, mad get madder. We gotta talk about the real Dracula. So, the real Dracula. Ooh. Yeah, that's right. So it's, the sun has started to set since we started recording. And we've not turned any lights on. You have a flashlight that I can hold under my head, face. No, but we do Fuck. have candles. That seems unsafe. Do you want me to light some candles? Let's light some candles. Where is my lighter? For someone who owns like 25 lighters, oh, here we go. That's why you need to own 25. Yeah, literally. You just yeeted the fucking candle. Well, it wasn't lit. And I'm expecting you to trust you with, like, a lit flame. I never said you had to trust me. Yeah, that's true. Oh, that is... Okay, that actually does add to the ambiance. It does. Spooky. Okay, so... The real Dracula. As many of you will know, the name Vlad Dracula was taken from a real guy. Bram Stoker came across a book about uh, southeastern Europe and was like, "Hey, this guy seems weird. I'm gonna base I'm gonna base my vampire on him." It was originally supposed to be Austrian. Really? Yeah, Austrians it was, are scarier. They are much scarier than Romanians. Romanians are a, a kindly people, whereas the Austrians are frightening. <laughs> <laughs> so he takes the name, and it, it's a bit of an open debate among Dracula scholars as to how much else he takes directly from the real Dracula. I'm of the view quite a lot. He th I think he drew on a quite a wide body of mythology. Yeah. The, the original Dracula, absolutely the most by far. Yeah. But I think there were other sources he looked at. Oh, sure. So let's start by... Let's start actually before the birth of the real Dracula, talking about the etymology of the word Dracula. So Dracula is the diminutive form of Dracul which is the old Romanian word for both a dragon and a demon, which makes sense because in sort of the medieval worldview, they were kind of one and the same entity. Nice. To understand how we get to the, the, uh, the, the name Dracula and, and the guy, we need to go back to the site of a previous episode and pick up on a story that we left off 
quite a while ago. It's all you mean this is all happening in the same universe? This is all happening in the in the medieval cinematic universe also known as the real world. <laughs> yeah, the MC, the real MCU. Um so many so those of you who listened to episode 4 will remember uh the Battle of Nicopolis. A disastrous escapade led by King Sigismund of Hungary. Um, you'll also remember a char- a, one of our favorite characters of all time, the greatest hater in medieval life, who fought at that battle and uh, experienced it for what it was, which was the biggest bungle in Christian history. <laughs> it was supposed to start a crusade, and it just didn't, because it went that badly. The name was by Conrad Kaiser of Giant Egg. Exploding cat fame. That yeah, guy. what else did he, he had like knife with a gun on it? Knife with a, a gun with a knife on it. I forget. Ladders that have swords on them. Yeah. Big like, fork that you pick up and run at enemies with. Yeah, like things that you like strap to your horses to make them more destructive. Scuba suit. Yes, yeah. Giant threshers. Exactly. Just As the if well, battle wasn't scary enough already. Well, he had a terrible time because, of course, the, the, uh, the Battle of Nicopolis was a disaster, and the person that he blamed for that was the commanding uh, leader of this sort of of this crusading army, King Sigismund of Hungary. Now, in the episode four, we sort of focused on Conrad Kaiser and his banishment from Bohemia and being salty about it, and subsequent prison literature, and his wonderful prison literature where he's like sent mailing it to the Holy Roman Emperor being like, please fuck this guy up. I will die mad. Yeah, he and he did. <laughs> um, but we didn't talk so much about what happened, what happened to Sigismund afterwards. Sigismund, uh, after Nicopolis, went back to Hungary. The whole thing's, the whole country's in chaos because everybody's just been like, our king left and he's humiliated himself. So he has a job of work to do to uh, restabilize his rule. And one of the things that he does to do that is create a new knightly order of all of his allies. And do you want to know what the name of that order was? Um, yes. The Order of the Dragon. Yes! One of the members of the Order of the Dragon was the Voivod of the Principality of Wallachia. Now, Wallachia is a small, uh, Mostly sort of mostly flat country, sort of sandwiched between uh, the Ottoman Empire to the south and um, Transylvania to the north. It's not hugely <laughs> at this stage. It's not hugely famous or notable, uh, except for the fact that later on it will unite with Transylvania and Moldavia to create the modern country of Romania. Bingo. So. It's about to get put on the map, isn't it? It is about, well, yeah, we're, we're going to get to the guy who does that. So, the Voivod of Wallachia um, was a guy named Vlad. This is not Dracula. This is Dracula's dad. <laughs> of all of the... I think there's a Dracula's daughter movie from the 30s. <laughs> there's like... Um, son of Dracula. The son of Dr- But Dracula's dad. Dracula's... Concept, not yet fully explored, I think. So please take it away. So Dracula's dad is clearly very pleased uh, to have been invited to the to the big table. Because, I mean, you know, in this, in this region, there are two sort of superpowers, as it were. There's the Kingdom of Hungary and, uh, and, and the Ottoman Empire. The Byzantines at this point are 
wasting away in Constantinople. They're kind of out of the picture at this point. This is, I should say, oh my god, for context, because I didn't set the scene, this is start of the 15th century. Excellent. Um, so yeah, so Constantinople hasn't yet fallen, but the Byzantines are basically out of the picture. The Turks are running rampant to the south, uh, and Hungary is to the north. And Sigismund sets up the Order of the Dragon with the specific aim of fighting the Turks. Now, given his track record of fighting the Turks, I personally wouldn't trust that guy to be in charge of that mission. No, you wouldn't have been first to sign up, would you? No, no, for, for many reasons. So Vlad, the Voivod of Wallachia, takes the name Dracul as an honorific to signify that, yeah, that's right, I'm part of the, I'm part of the big boys club. I'm in, I'm an important geopolitical player in uh, 15th century Eastern European politics. It's every girl's dream. Yep, exactly. Now this is where things get horrifically complicated, and I'm gonna need you to stick with me, right? I'll do it. Because I mentioned the geopolitics of Southeastern Europe, and the geopolitics of Southeastern Europe is horrifically complicated, and the records are terrible, which means that we basically and everybody has the same name and also three names, so. We're going to have to be tread very carefully here. So, after signing up to the super, the, the all-singing, all-dancing uh, Order of the Dragon, off to fight the Turks, etc., Dracula's dad, well, as soon as uh, Sigismund dies, uh, he switches sides and allies himself with the Ottomans. Wow. Yeah. More like Vlad the Snake. Yeah. So, Wallachia initially in, uh, supports an Ottoman invasion of Transylvania, which at this point is a principality that's sort of under the dominion of the Kingdom of Hungary but switches sides again in 1441. And the Sultan, the Ottoman Sultan, is pretty unimpressed with that behavior. <laughs> um, and yeah, they wrote a song about it, didn't they? What was that? You change your pants <laughs> <laughs> like a girl. Like, like, like Dracula changes sides. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's how that goes. Anyway, so the, the Sultan captures Dracula's dad, and also Dracula's dad's sons, including one Vlad the Younger, who will, when he takes the throne, go by the diminutive form of Dracul, which is... Dracula. Yeah. So, um... So event- Dracula means little dragon. Yeah. Like the rapper. Wow. That's that's Dracula's rapper name. <laughs> they, they so, so, so they're captured and, and, and taken to the Ottoman court as sort of prisoners slash guests. And the, uh, because, you know, the Ottomans are, they're, they're, they're civilized people. They treat their guests well, as long as they don't fuck up and then they'll murder them horribly. Dracula's dad gets released because the Sultan is like, okay, I've made my point. But he keeps the sons. He keeps the sons for eight years. So the young Dracula spends his formative years in the court of the Ottoman Sultan, the, the court of Murad II. And he hangs out with... Conrad Kaiser? Wrong. The other guy from that episode. Mehmet. Mehmet II. Mehmet II, Fatih Mehmet himself. The big fucking... Uh, the, the weeboo for ancient Greece. Yes. Uh, the, the, the vanquisher of Constantinople. He's just like me. So he spends his formative years in the Ottoman court hanging out with uh, Mehmet II. And we have basically no idea what he was doing because, again, these records are terrible. But we do know that eight years later, in 1448, he's released when his father gets assassinated. And the Ottomans are basically like, well, we don't need these hostages anymore. In fact, not only do they release him, but they give him an army 
and basically say, you would make an excellent voivode of Wallachia for us. We've trained you. Uh, we've raised you, basically. Go and go and set yourself up as the new voivode in the, in the sort of power vacuum that your father's death has created. However, and he does do that. He, he, sees, he becomes uh, the voivode with Ottoman support for six months, and then he's deposed. <laughs> Oops. No, no, don't worry. We're, he'll come back. He's, so he flees initially to the, to the Ottoman Empire. In, in 1456, he tries again, this time with Hungarian support. Um, because again, just everybody's trying to play everybody else off against each other. All the, the, all the leaders in this story, they're all very sort of Mac in that one episode of It's Always Sunny, where he just sort of loudly announces to everybody, I'm playing both sides so that I always end up on top. That's Dracula. Um, anyway, so this time he succeeds in 1456 with the backing of the Hungarians. And his first, the first thing that he does, basically is he, he invites all the boyars, the great men of, of Wallachia, to Targoviste, which is a town in Romania now, for an Easter Sunday feast. That sounds pleasant and unlikely to go awry. And normal. Yeah. I actually don't know what happens next in this story. Oh, great. Okay, fantastic. Yes, okay. I can only imagine. So, as soon as all the nobles are in the room, he bars the doors, and he says, Right, you fucking pricks. At least some of you helped assassinate my father. So here's what's going to happen. All of the old boyars, the, you know, the, 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 the elderly ones, uh, are impaled on spikes. And the ones who are still young enough to work are stripped of their finery and fucking marched to the side of this hill to rebuild this castle outside of the town of Ponari. And it's a 50-mile trek and a lot of them die on the way, but the ones who get there are ordered to build him a fortress on the ruins of this old castle overlooking the Arges River. And you want to know what that castle is? Dracula's that's Castle Dracula. Castle. That's no, that's that's the that's the real Castle Dra- Castle Damn. Dracula. You can still visit it. Anyway, wait, but it was made with slave labor. Doesn't that make Dracula like kind of a bad guy? Nah, these are this this is this is These's like different times. Yeah. This is a theme that comes up in Romanian history quite a lot, especially during the communist period. There's a little hint of Pol Pot there, I think. <laughs> so wait, was he called Vlad the Impaler purely because of the one incident, or was it like serial impalings? Did he impale again? Oh, Olivia, we're going to get to the... We haven't even got to the thing that lets him makes him become Vlad the Impaler. Oh, God. He's not Vlad the Impaler yet. Jesus Christ. <laughs> He's you, have, just... you have no idea what's coming. So, here's the interesting thing about that story, though, and, you know, a lot, of that, a lot of that story might be apocryphal, there's a lot of legends that sprung up about Dracula after his death, but we do know that something very bad happened to the nobility uh, in the sort of late 1450s, and that, ca- that, that, that that old fortress did mysteriously get rebuilt. There was definitely a clearing out and punitive revenge against all the sort of nobility who'd wronged him and his family. That's very Pol Pot. It is a bit. Well, it's going to get more so. What that, the interesting thing about that, though, is that that cleared out the old elite. It meant that Dracula could then install a new elite who were loyal to him, Ugh. which made him far more powerful within the boundaries of his own state 
than a medieval ruler typically would be, because a medieval ruler is constantly having to negotiate with all these different other power brokers. Wow. Yeah. And with the, in the case of Vlad Dracula, that's tremendously bad news if you're Wallachian, because this guy's a fucking psychopath. He's insane. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm going on a tangent here for a second, but... Almost always when we do this show, and I research like a specific guy, I have like a real like pathos for them and liking for them by the end. I hate this guy. He's insane. He's terrifying. And we haven't even gotten into why yet. So, he was famous for his brutal punishment techniques. He would order people to be skinned, boiled, decapitated, blinded, strangled, hanged, burned, roasted, hacked, nailed, buried alive, stabbed, etc. Not always all the same time, at the same time, obviously. That would like, be quite... Too, over ma- the too many cooks and whatnot, wouldn't yeah. you say? But his favorite method of execution was impalement, which is why he learned, he gained the, the title of Tepes, which is impaler in Romanian, and even the Turks called him Kaziglu uh, Bey, which means the impaler prince. Ooh. Yeah, I know. Uh, so... He did that in 1457, 1459, and 1460 about, against Transylvanian nobles and merchants who didn't follow his trade laws. You know, he's, he's terrifying. Let's get to the main impaling, right? So eventually, in 1461, for no obvious reason that I can divine, he decides to invade the Ottoman Empire. This is, this is the thing about him. He's an absolute live wire. He's a loose cannon. He just does shit. He starts... He basically went up to a giant bear, didn't poke it, whacked it with a stick, (laughs) and said, fuck you. By this point, the Ottoman Emperor is Mehmet II, the guy who he grew up with, which is fascinating and, you know, has... issues. Well, a lot of people have, have sort of drawn out that kind of relationship, and it is fascinating to think about. Unfortunately, we have basically no idea of what their personal relationship was. And, you know, the, the household of an Ottoman sultan was so enormous that they might not have ever even met. But what if they did? And even if they hadn't, growing up in this guy's court would definitely give you some type of feeling, wouldn't it? Yeah. If you'd been separated from your father and what you oh, perceived yeah. to be your birthright. You've got, this guy's got issues. He's got problems. God, what an interesting guy. We're not even... Oh my god. Okay, so... Oh boy. <laughs> this We're getting to the climax now, though. Alright, alright. So, Hit me with it. So, Mehmet II... Uh, again, this is, the, this is not a guy who you want to fuck with. He's the guy who ended the Roman Empire. So cool. Like, he's a very effective general, a very powerful ruler of the one of the largest states in the world. Terrifying thing to do. So... Mehmet personally brings his army north to stamp out this bug that's bothering him. And uh, he comes across one of the most fucked up things that's ever happened in history, I think. To any of our listeners, right now we're sitting in like a mostly dark room and the only source of illumination is our laptops. And, and one a candle. solitary lavender scented candle that was sent to me by my aunt for my 23rd birthday. So. Woo! It's very atmospheric I, re- I highly recommend a sort of equivalent or similar experience. Oh, yeah, this is this, this is to be experienced in the dark, this Don't next Don't be listening part. to this on the subway, okay? No. We're going to know if you do. Well, maybe the subway at, like, 2 a.m. That has a similar two, vibe to, this, to yeah. this story. So Mehmet's army sort of rampages north 
And he's brought, oh, by the way, Mech, I should say, Mechmed has brought Vlad's younger brother, Radu, with him, who has also been groomed as like a potential, he's groomed as like a, a puppet ruler to install. And uh, he mar- he marches all the way to uh, Targoviste, which is uh, the capital of Wallachia. But when he gets there, he finds it undefended. There's nobody in the city. But there are some people outside of the city. And this next part comes from a, a, a Greek Byzantine scholar who was sort of implanted in the court of Mehmed II as a sort of historian. And... Uh, he describes how when the Turkish army reaches the, the capital, they find it surrounded by a forest of the impaled. Ah. Thousands and thousands of corpses impaled on stakes. And this is, this is what he says. The Sultan's army entered into the area of the impalements, which was 17 stades long and 7 stades wide. There were large stakes there on which, as it was said, about 20,000 men, women, and children had been spitted, quite a sight for the Turks and the Sultan himself. The Sultan was seized with amazement and said it was not possible to deprive of his country a man who had done such great deeds, who had such a diabolical understanding of how to govern his realm and its people. And he said that a man who had done such things was worth much. The rest of the Turks were dumbfounded when they saw the multitude of men on the stakes. There were infants too, affixed to their mothers on the stakes, and birds had made their nests in their entrails. I love the idea of rocking up to the forest of impalements, like, (laughs) hell yeah! (laughs) Who did this? He seems cool. My compliments to the chef! (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, Mehmet did... I personally think that the, the author is it is taking some license with Mehmet's reaction because Mehmet does then just basically go home and say, fuck this. Like, what, he, what he's saying here is basically saying, like, you know what? This guy is insane. Fuck this. Fuck all of you. I'm out of here. Radu, you handle this. I'm going home to Constantinople where people are normal. People don't get impaled on spikes. I love, I mean, I, a couple years ago, I went to the Barbican Theater with my boyfriend and uh-huh. watched Jordan Peele's movie, Nope. Yeah. Good movie. In which sort of, I think, the... the Oh, not that scene. Oh, God. Oh, no, I was just thinking about the part where he's in the car and he sees the monster and he's just like, nope. (laughs) And rolls up the windows. (laughs) Well, that's literally what, like, I mean, that's what Mehmet was saying. He's just like, this guy is not worth it. (laughs) Yeah. Fair enough, man. Fair enough. Yeah, anyway, the, the the rest of Vlad's life is, you know... He gets deposed by his by his brother. He flees to Hungary, where he, they imprison him again for a bit. Yeah, good. And that yeah, and then they're like, actually, no, you can go back because he's a he's a useful tool. This or you want the impaler of the impaling <laughs> <laughs> of the of the Valachian impalers. <laughs> yeah, so he's and then they sort of they basically release him like an attack dog later, and he sort of goes back and 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 rules again very briefly. Um, but the, and then that, and then he dies eventually on campaign. That's the end of, of, of Vlad the Impaler. That's the life of Vlad. After his death, Wallachia becomes pretty definitively a, a vassal of the Ottoman Empire for basically until the 19th century. But he does get remembered. He's remembered actually surprisingly fondly in Romanian national folklore as a ruler who was, yes, 
brutal but just and got results you know there was a le- there's a there's a there's one legend that's almost certainly not true um where they said that like in the town of Targovista there was a golden cup that was left completely unattended in the center of the stage and no one ever stole it because they knew that if they did Vlad Dracula would find them oh dear <laughs> yeah and, and by the way, I should say, he's, he's also like, there are pamphlets in Germany being written about this guy in, in his lifetime. He's already becoming a sort of horror icon in his lifetime. But then he sort of, he, he, he grows to become this kind of like Robin Hood-esque figure. Because he, you know, he did fuck with rich people. Yeah. And that's a useful thing for lots of different political movements to, to reference. Anyway, so... He cut, but he does kind of fade out of the Western popular imagination for quite a long time, until the late 19th century. Now, we mentioned in a sort of glib way that the, the social context of, of the British Empire in the lifetime of Bram Stoker, but I think it's also important to understand the geopolitics of Southern and Eastern Europe in that period, because... This is a time when the Ottoman Empire, after having been, you know, the predominant power for centuries, um, their influence in Europe is fading away. It's not like, people call, the sick man of Europe myth is is overdone, but it is fair to say that in this period, Ottoman power is kind of, it's it's just receding like a tide, very slowly. And one of the things that happens with that is that these provinces that have been Ottoman vassals for hundreds of years are returning to the European world. It's like the, the analogy I would draw is to, it's sort of like post-1991, uh, Eastern Europe kind of returning from the foreign power of the East. And that's something that people are processing in the context of Britain's own imperial sort of slowdown and decline across the world, and the sort of increasing prevalence of non-white, non-Christian, non-English-speaking people in British affairs. And so these things, these things are happening simultaneously. A lot of scholars have made the point that the fictional Dracula represents the return of the repressed, the primitive, barbaric, fearful past returning to menace the civilized world through the uh, the reemergence and a sort of recontact with foreign societies basically like he washes up on your shore and sucks your ladies dry you know exactly he's, uh, exactly this he's, is he's shall malignant. We, yeah. this is shall we say problematic <laughs> from absolutely a, from, from a modern person but like it's fascinating because it is, I think, one of the first times that the vampire as like a mythological creature isn't necessarily associated directly with death and fear of death. And, you know, in that the, the sort of fear is no longer fear of something within the community, something personal, but rather fear of the unknown and fear of foreign intrusion. Mm, which is also how we get, well, how Jews get mixed up in all of this as well. It's that it's it metastasizes. Yeah. And Dracula is the perfect, perfect character to do that because he is terrifying. He is a horrific character <laughs> in real life. You don't really need to do that much. 
So yeah, he is the uh, the part of European history that uh, modern Europe has chosen to forget, returning to menace them. The ultimate medieval vampire. Yeah, and and as well sort of deeply wrapped up in the author's own fears and anxieties. So I think it is absolutely a form of what one might call collective problem solving mm. in that it's a Dracula as a character is a manifestation of these fears of like foreign intrusion and fears of the unknown. And also there's a deeply personal component as well and it's sort of hard to know what angle to approach this from because I do think that you know I, I I don't mean to sort of arbitrarily read modern meaning into a Victorian work and so when people say things like oh queering the Dracula narrative I think a lot of people's first impression of something like that can be oh they're trying to make Dracula gay. Dracula's always been gay because it's it was because you know now in you in, think him and Mehmet the second weren't getting it on <laughs> because now in the modern times the trend is to make everything gay so now we have to make Dracula gay. Dracula's gone whoa. So Bram Stoker himself, who wrote Dracula, is a really interesting guy. We don't know a lot about his personal life and his sexuality. So, yeah, Bram Stoker was married once, but rather unhappily, and it's been speculated, in fact, that he might have been gay. Sort of the main things that people point to are his correspondence with the American poet Walt Whitman, who was very gay, and Bram Stoker, and very openly so, this is not disputed, and Bram Stoker essentially wrote Walt Whitman all these letters being saying things to the effect of, oh, I admire you so much for your honesty and your courage. You, you've been you've been able to vocalize that which I have never been able to. Oh, come on. So I don't think it's, it's not, it's hardly subversive and it's hardly new to read into this that Bram Stoker himself might have um, also been gay or experienced same-sex attraction, especially in light of the fact that he began writing Dracula one month after the conclusion of Oscar Wilde's trial. Fuck! For public indecency. Really? Yes. Oh my god. And, um, and so the Dracula narrative, which consists of this, you know, sophisticated older man preying upon a younger <laughs> sort of helpless man. It has been interpreted as sort of an externalization of Bram Stoker's own fears and anxieties surrounding his own sexuality and perhaps a wish to to not feel this this sort of um, this difference between himself and the people around him, but also his immense fear at what might transpire and how he might be perceived if he were to be open about this aspect of himself. Goddamn. Well, yeah, I mean, I think to, to wrap it up, you know, we've talked about vampires and people who either contributed to the vampire mythos by being sort of horrible creatures yeah. um, in their own lives or who I'm wrote... so glad I got to tell you that story because it's one of the best. Oh, it's frightening. Or people who wrote about vampires. But I think for me, the overarching theme that kind of binds this together is, is this mythologization of the vampire and of folklore in general, as a mirror of human anxieties and undercurrents in human society. This is, yeah. you know, people were, were, were intelligent and were adaptive and were able to take sort of the substrate of folklore and mythology and 
turn it into whatever we need it to be in order yeah. to justify our fears and our concerns and our baser impulses. And I think the vampire mm-hmm. is an absolutely amazing encapsulation of that. To me, all of this, the myths of vampirism and the story of Dracula and all that stuff, it's kind of, I, th- I think it speaks to the, the sort of the place where the psychological and the social kind of meet and do fucked up stuff. Like everybody, everybody's dealing with stuff, you know, whether it's, whether it's Bram Stoker dealing with his possible same-sex attraction, whether it's the real Dracula processing his very obvious and poor, like thinly veiled trauma and um, <laughs> horrific, uh, horrific uh, life experiences uh, by inflicting horrific pain on his, on his people or, you know, or just a, a, a villager in, you know, 10th century Rus, like, processing what death means. These myths are a way that we, as a society, make the personal, like, make the personal social. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a a very succinct way of putting it. There's just one more thing we have to deal with, Olivia, before I let you go. You see, I fooled you. I am not Aaron at all. I am Count Dracula. Oh, dear. I have brought you under my spell, and now I will drink your blood. (laughs) The fuck is going on in here? What is is it? Why are you hanging out with Dracula? Aaron? Wait, but he... I thought he was Aaron. That's, oh, my, my. that's my roommate, Dracula. <laughs> Look, it's London, all right? Sometimes you don't... Sometimes you don't get to live with the people you want to live with, okay? Dracula, what the... F- what, what are you doing? It seems like you and Dracula have a very close relationship, though. What are you implying? There's, no, there's nothing going on there. We're just roommates. <laughs> Listen, I just... You always get to go on the podcast. I wanted to... I wanted to join in. I heard you were doing an episode about vampires, and I thought, who's more qualified to do this episode? Listen, Dracula. Yes? You're valid. <laughs> we're in- just... We're happy to have you here. Oh, so I don't have to, like, enchant you or anything? No, no, absolutely not. You no, know, Matt, you can just come over. It's fine. Yeah, totally. You know... I wanted to ask, I've been oh, seeing yeah, this yeah. therapist, and, like, I know you've got some sort of, like, unhealed trauma from everything that happened. I've got like, a lot of stuff going on. In your childhood, and, like, I was thinking maybe, you know, you might want to go and, like, talk to this guy. He's really good, and, you know, I found sessions with him to be really rewarding. Oh, yeah, yeah. What's his name? He's a res- very respected psychiatrist. His name is Dr. Van Helsing. All right. Dracula's gone, so we can wrap up the podcast. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for, uh, for for sticking with us in this episode of the Weird Medieval Guys podcast. Uh, it was a bit of a dark one, but it is Halloween. The nights are fair drawn in these days. I hope you enjoyed our, our, our spooky deep dive into death and blood and horror and all that sort of lovely stuff. All the best stuff. And... Um... As always, just a reminder, I've got a book coming out. It's in about three weeks now that you can get yourself a copy of the Weird Medieval Guys book, but it's yes. not too late to pre-order it, too. You can make sure it gets d- delivered directly to you as quickly as possible. Um, it's a fabulous little thing. It's a great book, and if you're not stupid, you will 
go and order it right now. It's called Weird Medieval Guys. If you have even a passing like interest in the Twitter account or the podcast or anything, like, a, a sliver of self-respect. It will. It will. This will like this. This is that, but more. Exactly. And, like better. Yeah. <laughs> Harder, want to say better, it, like, faster, stronger. All right. Let's 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 bring it home, Daft Punk. All right. Well, as always. Um, Oh, please do leave us a review. If you like five stars, please give us a five-star review. And feel free to let us know your thoughts in your yes. review or in the Spotify advice box. We actually have some uh, reviews from last time that we might like to read out loud. This is on What's the Deal with Jesters. Someone said, I hope there will be jesters at the WMG theme park. There is no WMG theme park, silly. This is from Not yet. Dennis Long. Um, a couple people have requested more jokes about Florence, which I don't know what that says about the Florentines, but this review finishes, I love the donkey joke and would love to hear more of that guy's material. Also more jokes about Florence. Well, I've got good news for you, because next episode... We're doing Florence. Yes. A deep dive. You're going to know what a gonfalonieri di giustizia is by the time we're finished with you. <laughs> but I also have some more. Uh, I have another Nasruddin joke to read yes. out to you for our... Um, Turkia number one. <laughs> so previously on Substack, I wrote um, a post about medieval Islam and Islam in general and their relationship with cats. And Link in the description. <laughs> And um, here's a good uh, Nasruddin joke about cats. So, after the Hoja got a liver recipe from his friend, he bought some liver. Nasruddin loved liver, and he wanted to eat it very often. But every time he bought liver, he couldn't, because his wife said the cat took the liver and fled away. One day, the Hoja became very angry and said, Woman, I bought liver. Where is it? <laughs> oh, said his wife, the silly cat took it and fled away. At this same time, the cat was in the room. The hoja caught it, brought a steelyard, and weighed the cat. Then he said, that is exactly two kilos, and the liver which I brought was also two kilos. <laughs> now tell me, if that is the liver, then where is my cat? And if that is the cat, then I want my liver. <laughs> Classic Nasruddin! Ah, oh, he's at it again. Yeah. So yeah, where can people find you, Olivia? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Weird Medieval or my personal account at Olivia underscore underscore MS. Aaron, I believe you're also on Twitter. I am. I am on Twitter. I'm at Aaron A R A N P Tappers. Uh, I'm not calling it X. I'm never calling it X. No. It's Twitter. That's till right. Till the day. Twitter till I die. Exactly. Twitter and then till... come back as a vengeful uh, revenant. I was gonna say Twitter till the day I get impaled on a stick. That too. All right. Well, on that happy note, um, happy Halloween. Keep it spooky and see you guys next time. Take it breezy. <laughs>